That's Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he, is, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. So we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. A man by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aragopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. He is risen. And that changes everything. 
Leo Tolstoy wrote in his book, A Confession, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live, wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? If the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus's heart didn't stop, start beating again after three days, and he didn't start breathing again, and he wasn't able to get up from a horizontal position into a vertical position, and he didn't have all of his faculties working, and he wasn't able to lay his grave clothes aside and walk out of that tomb gloriously, then there is nothing absolutely nothing in life that the inevitability of death will not destroy. But if the resurrection is true, that changes everything. And the inevitability of our death cannot destroy everything. The resurrection of Christ demands, demands a response of us. The sheer historical reality of it as displayed in the text that Jason just read in Acts 17 demands a response. It was clear from chapter 17, verse 32, where we read, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, there were three different responses. The resurrection demands a response. It demands a positive, a negative, a neutral response, but a response it demands and a response it always gets. This morning, I want to walk through this text in Acts 17, Paul's, what's been called Paul's visit to Mars Hill or Paul's visit to the Areopagus in Athens. And I want to unpack this really with four very simple questions this morning. I want to follow what Paul says right up to the resurrection with these four questions. Who is God? Who are we? What does God demand of us? And what's our response? Very simple. What, what does this passage teach us, teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about ourselves? What does this passage teach us about what God requires of us? And what does this passage what kind of response should this passage elicit or does this passage elicit? So first question is, who is God? And we get a, Paul starts there and he begins in verse 24 with a description of God. Now he walks in to this area and he's deeply grieved in the spirit. It says that in verse 16, his spirit is provoked within him because as he walks through Athens, this cosmopolitan metropolis and marketplace, this intellectual capital of the ancient world, as he walks into this city, which he's never visited previously, he notices that the city is full of idolatry. And in fact, the idols that they worship, they don't even know. 
And he walks in and he sees this altar. And the altar is not built to any particular God. It's actually inscribed to the unknown God. And Paul takes that altar and the description that's written on it and uses it as a launching pad for a sermon. And he begins by saying, this God whom you don't know, I want to tell you about because I know him. This God whom you believe has not spoken, I want to tell you that he has spoken. This God whom you claim cannot be known, I claim can be known, and I want to tell you how. And so he begins to tell us who this God is. Notice how he starts, verse 24. The God who made the world. Now he is in a city that is full of beliefs in many gods. There are many different gods. There are many different paths. There are many different deities one can worship. And Paul says, no, really, there's one. This unknown God, this unknown God to you is one God. He is the God, not one of many. He's the one and only. And I declare him to you. What does he declare about this one God? He says that he's the God who made the world and everything in it. So he is the creator of the entire world. He made everything and everyone in the world. There is nothing that does not have his fingerprints all over it. He says this God is not only the one who made the world and everything in it, but he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not only the creator, he's also the king. He's not only the fashioner, he's also the ruler. He's the Lord of everything he has made. He rules over everything he has made. And this God does not, verse 24, live in temples made by man. I mean, he's looking at a city that is full of temples to all kinds of gods. And he says to them, this God who made the world, who made everything in the world and everyone in the world who is the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples like this. He's not containable. He's not restricted by us and tamed by us. He does not isolate himself to human structures. We don't find him in buildings and rituals. Rather, he's everywhere. At all times, in every place, he's omnipresent. And not only that, this God who made everything is Lord of everything and does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, he's not served by human hands either as though he needed anything. God is the great sustainer of life. He does not need the service of his creatures. He is not dependent upon others rendering him worship to feel worthy and glorious and magnificent and majestic. He doesn't need his people for anything. He is the God who does not lack in anything. He is self-sufficient. Since, Paul says, this is the reason he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God cannot be served by men because he serves men. 
He cannot be served as though he needed anything since he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. Everything you have, everything I have is a gift from God, including It's God doing that. You're breathing because of God right now. Life and breath and everything is him. So this God is great. This God is the creator. This God is the sustainer. This God is the ruler. This God is not a God who is dependent on on anyone or anything. This is a great and a glorious God. And Paul declares it to them, declares him to them. Second question, who are we? Who are we? We see this beginning at verse 26, where Paul makes a shift from talking about God to talking about man. He says in verse 26, he made, talking about God, God made from one man, every nation of mankind. Now, what's he talking about here? He's taking us all the way back to Genesis, isn't he? Very, very beginning of the Bible, where God makes Adam and makes Eve, and from Adam we are all descended, as Romans 5 clearly teaches. He made from one man every nation of mankind. We have the same origin, which means we have more in common than we have different. There are real cultural differences that exist in the world. There are real personality differences. There are real linguistic language differences. There are, there's real diversity. The Baldwins are going to experience that. The Danes are going to experience that when they head to the Horn of Africa and the Baldwins head to Serbia. They're going to experience some real differences. But they're going because they believe this. That there is more in common that they have with Serbians and people who live in the Horn of Africa than differences. Skin color may be different. Language may be different. Culture and tradition may be different. But need is not different. Being made by God is not different. And therefore we have more in common with each other than we have different. Because everyone as a human descended from Adam, we have the same basic need. And Paul acknowledges that when he says he made from one man every nation of mankind, North America, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, one man, all the nations. And he made them, notice, to live on all the face of the earth. God has created everyone who lives all over the world and it was his intention that they live all over the world. No matter the continent, he ordained all the different languages, all the different cultures of the world were made by God. And God intended the whole earth to be filled with the presence of his image, namely human beings. So he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This great six and a half billion plus. Not to mention all those down through the ages. Not only has he made us all, every nation of mankind from one man, but he's determined, verse 26, the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. 
God has determined where we live and how long we live. That's what he means by having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. We are sitting here, and most of us live here, except for the Thomases, but we are, we, we are sitting here and living here in Owensboro, Kentucky, because God wanted it that way. He's determined where we live and how long we live. You are the age you are today because of God. You will be the age you will be because of God. He gives to all men life and breath and everything, and he determines allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Verse 27, what's the reason for all of this? What's the reason that we were, we were made? What's the reason that the nations exist? What's the reason that human beings populate the whole face of the earth? What's the reason that he determined allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place? Verse 27, that they should seek God. That they should seek God. This is fundamental to human beings. And if we don't get this, we will be jacked up. We are going to be a messed up bunch if we don't get the main purpose of our creation. That we should seek God. And that's what Paul steps in and says to these Athenians. He says, we're, look, look at all of this. Look at all of this. This is so much evidence that you were made to seek God. I mean, look at what you do. You build these temples and these structures and these great works. I mean, doesn't it make sense that you were made to seek God? And he does. He finds common ground with them in that. That they should seek God. We were made for relationship with him and every human being is on this quest, whether they know it or not. And most people in this great world, which contains every nation of mankind living on all the face of all the earth. Most people are searching for God without realizing it. They were. And all of our life. All of our seeking of joy and happiness and purpose and fulfillment is ultimately a pursuit of God. We are worshipers by nature and we worship throughout our lives. God says that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him. See, that's what we do. Apart from God telling us something like Paul is doing here, telling us who he is, telling us what, who we are, telling us what our need was, our, what our need is. All of our life is sort of this groping and feeling our way after God. We are, we are pursuing God in a certain sense, even though we're not even aware of it. And this is because worship is not merely an aspect of who we are as human beings. It's the essence of who we are as human beings. As a result of being made in God's image, all of our life is ceaseless worship. Practically, this means that while worship does include things like this, corporate church gatherings and singing songs and liturgical forms and prayer and all that, it's not limited to this. Defined solely as these things or expressed only in these things because worship never stops 
We are continually giving ourselves away or pouring ourselves out for a person or a cause or an experience or an achievement or a status. And sadly, as the doctrine of the fall reveals, much of, how we, much of what we pour ourselves out for and what we pour ourselves into in worship is someone or something other than the Trinitarian God of the Bible. And as the doctrine of God's image reveals, image being mankind, who we are, we are unceasing worshipers. We are not merely created to worship. We are created worshiping. The Athenians didn't have to be told to worship. They reflexively were a worshiping people. Everyone worships all the time. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, everywhere in between are all unceasing worshipers. Everyone, everywhere, at all time, in all places is always worshiping. While the object and method of worship varies, the fact of worship does not. Does not. Because... God created us that we should seek him in the hope that we might feel our way toward him and find him. The best way to describe it, worship, is that worship is a continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen God. And according to Paul here, by not knowing the true God and who they really were in their need of him, they didn't stop worshiping. They merely exchanged God for another God, they, which is what we call idolatry. And that's what Paul notices as he walks into Athens in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas. While he's waiting for them to arrive, his spirit is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And then verses 22 and 23, Paul says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. So they were deeply religious and deeply idolatrous. What they were doing was worshiping continually. But instead of worshiping and living to the glory of God the Creator... They were worshiping and living for the glory of creation, which is the definition of idolatry. And that, th this idolatry can be anything that can be made. It's not just temples to Athena. It's not just intellectual philosophy. It can be anything. Because we were created to worship God and to enjoy and steward his creation, everything in creation can be potential objects of our worship. Idolatry is what happens when, invert, when worship inversion occurs. In other words, we're supposed to worship the creator and steward creation. But when that is, gets inverted and we worship the creation and steward the creator, you've got idolatry. Something else that was created is essentially deified. Becomes the object of our adoration, our love, our trust, our hope. It's glorified. It's put in a preeminent or penultimate position. It becomes the source of our identity and our joy, the object of our affection. It is literally the object of our worship. And here's the tricky part. Most of the time, we don't worship bad things. Most of the time, we worship good things. But when we take good things and turn them into God things, 
then it becomes a bad thing. So what are some examples of that? There are moral and immoral examples of that. There are moral examples of taking good things like work and family and marriage and appearance and wealth and career and religious performance and political parties and a good cause and health and elevating that to an object of our worship. And there's immoral examples of that too. Sex, drugs, alcohol, food, substance abuse, and elevating those kinds of things to the object of our worship. Because workaholics and alcoholics have a lot more in common than they realize. They both have a chosen God to whom they are looking for satisfaction and refuge and being a savior that will save you from your life. So both have chosen their God, one idol's just more readily esteemed by the culture. That's all. It doesn't make it any different in God's eyes. So we can detect our idols, and Paul detected the idols of Athens here by seeing what they devoted themselves to and what they were pursuing and what they loved. So let me ask you this question What is your heart value? What's one thing, person, or experience that you're most afraid of losing? For what do you make sacrifices? For what will you say no to other people to do? Where does your mind go when you can think about anything? What do you turn to for comfort? During stressful times. I mean. Brothers and sisters. We don't. We don't need to have temples built. To Athena. To recognize idolatry. We got home entertainment systems. Modern day temples. We've got buffets. Where we can go serve God belly. We've got the fridge. Now, am I saying food's bad, marriage is bad, family's bad? No, of course not. God created them all. We're supposed to steward them all for his glory. I'm saying how subtle it is when we take something that God created and make it ultimate. Make it something from which we seek only what we should get from God. God created you not to get food from his drive-thru. Like, you know, I'm just waiting for God to feed me. I'm not going to go eat. I'm not going to the grocery store. He's just supposed to feed me because I don't want to be an idolater. No, go to the grocery store and buy food, right? But how subtle it can be with us when we begin to look to that food, which God created for, to sustain us. And we start to look at it to get us through. Whatever we turn to could potentially be a functional savior. Make me happy, comfort me, give me joy, change my attitude, my current state. Get me out of this. That's a worship act. That's a worship act. And how subtle, how subtle idolatry works. Whether it be a sports team or a hobby or family or morality or food or sex or a job or career, a husband or wife, we're all very religious. We're all very religious.
And every human being is that way because we're made to seek God. So we're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's just, are we seeking the true one? In the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. God desires to be found. Which is why he's made himself known. And then Paul concludes with verse verse 27 by saying, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Isn't Isn't that an amazing thought? In the midst of all this groping, in the midst of all this pursuit, God says, I'm not far from you. I'm not far from you. And ultimately, we know that because he actually became one of us. He became a human being in Jesus Christ. He became, in that sense, while God is not found in temples made by man, he is found in a temple made by God. And that temple is the body of Christ. That's why Jesus said, right? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. This temple, this place where you meet God is me. So God is not found in temples made by man, but he is in fact found in a non-physical temple. Well, physical, not meaning a building, but a person, namely Jesus. And so God is found there. And Paul says he actually quotes from one of uh, a source that they would have known very well, one of their writers, when he says in verse 28, in him, we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. We are created by God. He's near to us. He's made himself available to us. He's come near to us. We are, we are feeling and groping our way toward him outside of Christ, but he's actually not far from each one of us. So third question, what does God want? What does God want? So we see God's the great creator, ruler, and sustainer. He's made us. He's determined our life. He gives us life and breath and everything. We're made to seek him. And we do, we, we, we seek after all sorts of things until we find him or rather are found by him. So what does God want? Verse 30. Or let's just, let's Let's pick up verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What's he saying? He's saying the times of ignorance, that, that period of time before the coming of Christ, which was a very in some sense, dark period of time where there wasn't a lot of biblical revelation about the person of Christ. He's like, now that Christ has come, God's not overlooking ignorance in that way anymore because now he has come and he has made himself known definitively in the person of his son. And now he commands all people everywhere to turn from idolatry They're false gods and turn to him, which is what repentance is. Repentance is turning from the things we trust in that are not God. Turning away from the things we look to give us what only God can give us. 
turning away from that and embracing the true God. Stop worshiping other things. Start worshiping him. Stop finding your identity in yourselves or what you do or don't do and start finding it in him, who he is and what he's done. And what will be the result of that repentance? What will be the result? Notice he, he doesn't just command North Americans to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Going back to what we said, because we have the same need. We have more in common than we have different. So Jesus applies to everyone. The resurrection applies to everyone. And he says, the purpose of this is that we would repent. So he commands all people everywhere to repent. And what will be the result? Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 13, 38 and 39, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness, forgiveness of all of our sin, of all of our idolatry, of all of our seeking of things that not God. God's willing to blot it out and wipe it all away. Wipe it all away. Get rid of all of it. Not just clean up the slate, but get rid of the slate altogether. God is saying if we will turn, if we will repent, he will completely forgive us for all of our ignorance. And brothers and sisters, we have known periods of ignorance, haven't we? Think about your youth. Think about your childhood. Think about your early adult life. And you think, you, you really resonate when you read the Psalms and David prays, remember not the sins of my youth. I was a complete idiot. I was foolish. And you could be sitting here this morning and saying, that's me right now. If you'd have known some of the things I did a couple of weeks ago. And I'm saying it can all be blotted out. It can all be forgiven. It can all be wiped away. How can that happen? Well, Paul doesn't say it here. He says it in other places in the book of Acts and in his letters, but it's really clear because second Corinthians five 21 is true. He made him, God made him who had no sin, Jesus to be sin for us on the cross so that in him through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the gift that is given to those who repent. But to, for those who will not repent, Paul says in verse 31, he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what? Paul says here, get this. He says, the reason you can be assured that you're going to be judged in righteousness by Jesus Christ at the end of the age is because God raised him from the dead. The resurrection means that there is a righteous judgment coming. Because if he just laid there, if he's just dead, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if he was raised from the dead, and God says right here, Paul says, God saying, that the reason he was raised from the dead to get, was to give this assurance, there's judgment. There's judgment. He has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. So God raised him up not only to be the savior, but to be the judge. 
And he's saying, you can have this judge as your savior if you will repent. And that day of judgment will be a very, very different experience for us. Very different experience. It will not be a day of dread and torment and fear. Because the one by whom we are being judged is the one who paid for our sins and blotted them out. And this judge is not a cruel judge. He's not a judge who practices double jeopardy. And he's not a judge that can be bribed. And he's not going to repay us for sins he himself has taken. So how do we respond? There are three responses to this great news of the resurrection from the dead. And who God is and who we are and what he commands. And these responses come right up to the present day. And they are the response that all of us will have. You will find your response to the resurrection right here. What are they? Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some laughed. (laughs) This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, talk about, I would rather have paganism than that. I would rather have temples made by man and altars to the unknown God and all this other stuff than this sort of ridiculous idea of who God is and who he's made us to be and what he commands and repentance and judgment. I mean, that is old. That's ancient. That's archaic. That's, that's not modern. We've progressed past that idea. I mean, you're still up there. You're preaching judgment and hell and all that stuff. I mean, we're way past that. Quit guilting people into Christianity. Quit making them feel bad. They shouldn't feel bad. They're not murderers. They haven't done anything wrong. They're good people. They're trying to raise families. They're trying to, you know, live a a normal, upstanding, moral life. Don't tell them those things. There's still that mocking that goes on. It's ridiculous. It's sub-intellectual. It's not worth embracing. We just talked about that a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor that point because we saw that when we were talking about 2 Peter about how people scoff at the idea of God and his claims. But others, there's a second response, not just the one of whatever and walking away. There's the response of interest. Interest. Paul says in verse 32, but others said, those who didn't mock, we will hear you again about this. So the first group, the mockers, they kind of align with people in verse 18. Who does this babbler, what's he wanting to say? This goofy guy who has no Athenian education. What's this babbler talking about? Preaching foreign divinities, whatever. He doesn't even live here. Verse 19, others said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish you to know, therefore, what these things mean. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So there's interest, right? We'll hear you again about this, they said. Now, some are not ready to embrace the claims of Christ and the claims of Christianity and the truthfulness of God yet, but they're willing to stick around. And if that's you here, that's great. That's great. But let me, let me give you just a little, a little warning. There's danger in this because notice these people didn't get another chance. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst. And we don't know if he ever talked to him again. That could have just been, okay, I'm leaving you for now and I'm going away and I'll, we'll come back and talk later. But it's very interesting that the people who say, I'm interested, Paul says, but I've got people who are believing over here and I need to go talk to them. So warm fuzzies and general interest is not any more a safe position than mocking. Indifference to the claims of the resurrection, indifference to the claims of the resurrection is not any safer than out and out scoffing at it because you're still not embracing it. You're still not moving toward it. He says, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. So just because we want another chance doesn't mean God actually will give us one. But then there's a third and a final response, which applies to the vast majority of us in this room. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we get men and women joining Paul and believing in what he said. And that's the third response. Now notice something. Believing involves joining. We don't believe in Jesus and the claims of the resurrection unless the allegiances of our life change. Because Paul says, you know, describing, or Luke says, describing this situation when he's writing it, he says, these people joined him, joined Paul, and they believed. So we cannot truly believe in Jesus and not join the mission of Jesus and not join the people of Jesus. Right? They're like, I believe what you're saying, Paul, and we're going with you. We join you in that mission. We join you in that mission to have a heart that grieves over idolatry and has a passion to share it with others. We join you in that mission to be deeply burdened by what we see and feel in our city that is not of God. Our heart breaks when Jesus is not prized, when the resurrection is scoffed at, when the resurrection is dismissed as neutral or unimportant or insignificant. Our heart breaks when people won't believe it. That's what it means to believe, to join yourself to the people of God. So let me ask those of you who are visiting this morning, are you a part of a local church? I don't just mean, is your name on a roll somewhere? I mean, are you vitally connected to a community of Christians with whom you are living your life, who are, who you, whom you know and are known by you? Because that's what it means to believe. To believe when God saved me at 16, one of the first responses was to hate the sin in me and to hate the sin I saw all around me. And secondly, I wanted to belong to a church. Where'd that come from? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. (laughs) Where'd that come from? It comes from God. Because when God saves us and we believe in Jesus, we join him. And and if if you're here and you're in transition and you don't, you haven't settled yet, we want to invite you Stick around, get, stick around back there. Talk to some of us, the pastors. I'll be back there. You can talk to me You can talk to any of our other pastors. We'd be happy to talk with you. We're not going to condemn you. We just want to get to know you and help you any way God would allow us to help you. So the resurrection 
really matters. It changes everything. I close with this quote. The message of the resurrection is that this world and this life matters. All the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news of Jesus Christ healing his justice, the love that is conquered in one. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, degradation are endemic, God's not prepared to tolerate such things. And that he will work out his plan to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche probably was right to say it was only for wimps. But don't take away Easter, and the resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, which is both searching and comforting all at the same time. It searches us. It searches out the idolatry in our lives. But it also points us to the fact that that, that, that surgery, that spiritual surgery that you're performing on us under your word is meant to bring us close to you. It's meant to bring us and help us to realize that, in fact, you are the one doing the surgery and you're not far from every one of us. So would you bring us all to a place where we believe and we join Jesus and his mission. In his name we pray. Amen.